I'm here on the top of Sandia Peak and behind me is the tramway. You can see the cables and the gears all in motion. This really is an incredible feat of modern engineering. It was built in the 1960s by a company out of Lucerne, Switzerland. It's amazing to me how the gondola system works. Uh, the cars can slow down and speed up and yet in other places it, it doesn't do that. You can still load and unload. Uh, you could explain to me how the tramway works, but I don't know that I would really believe it unless I saw it. And this kind of reminds me of our text today. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, and the Pharisees don't believe him. In fact, they want to stone him for blasphemy. And to believe him, they, they want evidence, they want proof. And Jesus says, I've given you the proof. I've done all of these amazing works. He's referring to his miracles. And the Pharisees are just an example to us that sometimes we can know the Bible really well, know what it says. They knew the Bible amazingly well, but because of their selfishness, they didn't know how to interpret it. And uh, we look at this tramway here. I, I could know all the vocabulary, right? The gears, the cable, the gondola, all of the things that go with this. But I also would fail to understand how it actually operates. And we can be like that when it comes to our approach to the Lord. It comes to our understanding of scripture. We have to die to self and, and not try to view these things through selfishness or we'll be like the Pharisees. We'll have all kinds of knowledge, but really not know the meaning of the text. So grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. Uh, John chapter 10. We're gonna finish our time um, in John 10 this morning and then I don't know where our pastor's gonna be next week, um, but today, John chapter 10. So um, we have all heard the statement, uh, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but, but what? But words can never hurt me. Now, we know that's not true, right? Like we, we make that statement whenever someone says something to us that really does hurt us. Whenever they criticize our intellect, our skill, our looks, our family, um, we say that to kind of reinforce us, or maybe we tell our kids that, our grandkids that, uh, because we know that words hurt, because words have power, right? You know, typically if you see someone get in a fight, the first question we ask is, I wonder what was said, what caused this fight to take place? Because words have power. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to make a statement that has power. Uh, now, his statement is going to cause frustration. In a sense, it's going to cause pain. But what he says isn't rude. It's just the truth. And Jesus isn't even trying to be well-meaning, but trying to offend or hurt. Jesus is sharing with them his identity. And what we're going to see is a group of Pharisees hate what Jesus has to say. And in response to what Jesus has to say, they want to pick up stones and they want to kill him. And so the main idea of our text this morning is simple, that, that, that Jesus' deity reveals, um, or Jesus reveals his deity through his works and his word. Um, I tell our students all the time that if I come to your house at three in the morning the next night after I preach on a Wednesday, and I wake you up and I want you to tell me what the main idea is, I want them to tell me that sentence because that's what this whole passage is about. And I say three in the morning because if you're like me, you're typically not awake and you can't think clearly. And so I want us to understand the point, the main idea of the text. And what we see from that is our response. So we've been going through this series of wisdom all year long. 
And what we're going to see here is not wise faith, but foolish faith. And I would step out there to say that maybe some of us this morning, we've heard about Jesus, we've seen what Jesus has done, but for some reason, like the Pharisees, we're still living in foolish faith. So John chapter 10, look with me at verses 30 through 42. So Jesus finishes his statement from last week and he says, I and the Father are one. In verse 31, John writes, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Uh, this morning, I want us to look at four truths. And so the, uh, the first truth we look at is that Jesus and the Father have the same essence. Jesus and the Father have the same essence. So Picking up where we looked, uh, left off last week. So in John chapter 10, Jesus is showing us how he is the good shepherd. So when we began this series in John 10, we, we saw that Jesus is the good shepherd who watches over his sheep. And we've learned that Jesus does not have his life taken away from him, but he does what? He lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. And then last week we learned that not only does Jesus lay down his life for the sheep, Jesus also secures their salvation forever. And so we saw that our salvation is in the hand of Jesus. And then the father comes on top and holds on to our salvation as well. And it's not because Jesus is not powerful enough to ensure your salvation, but it's a picture and an image of how the father and the son are working together. And so in this verse, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the first thing we think about is that Jesus and the Father, they, they have this same mission. See, Jesus is not some rogue ambassador. It's not that the Father told Jesus, hey, I want you to go down to earth and here's the plane. And then Jesus said in response, you know, dad, I don't think that's a really good idea. Um, I think I'm going to do this instead, instead. But no, what does Jesus do? He does exactly what the Father has called him to do. That the Father has consecrated him, the Father has now commissioned him, and Jesus is walking in obedience to what the Father has for him. They are unified in their will, unified in their mission. But that's not what actually gets the Pharisees upset. See, they understand what Jesus is actually saying. That Jesus isn't speaking to them having the same mission. Jesus is speaking to them having the same essence. So in our Bibles in verse 30, you see that word one. Now, 
In our English language, uh, we can't pick up on what John's trying to communicate to us. So in the English language, um, hopefully I'm not wrong because uh, I'm not an English major, um, but in the English language, we don't have gendered words. Like we have words for gender, like male and female, guy, girl, but our words don't have gender. But in Greek, the nouns do have gender. There's masculine, there's feminine, and there's neuter. In this verse, John uses the neuter word for one and not the masculine word. If John used the masculine word, what John would be telling us is that Jesus is saying that I and the Father are the same person. But that's not what Jesus says. Now, I know it's early in the morning, um, but we understand to the best of our ability uh, that the concept of the Trinity tells us that Jesus and the Father are not the same person. Uh, that we as believers, we believe that one God exists, but this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And none of these persons are the same as the other in person. So the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the, fa or, or the Father or the Son. Are you tracking with me? Confused yet? Um, so so they're, they're not the same person but they are the one God. And so what John does here is he gives us the neuter word for one. And what John's trying to tell us is that Jesus and the Father, they are of the same essence. And all throughout John, John's been painting that, that for us, preparing us for this moment where Jesus tells us that he and the Father are one. In fact, our pastor mentioned last week that John uses the word signs and signs point to something. And if you read through John again, starting in chapter one, all the way up to chapter 10, last week, what we saw was them ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And this is only the second time in John's gospel where Jesus is claimed to be the Messiah. The first time is in John chapter four when the Samaritan woman asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? And so what John is trying to do for us is not simply tell us Jesus is the Messiah. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. So he does all these miracles, all these works leading up to the final moment of Jesus's ministry to help us ask the question, are you the Messiah? And so before we move on, what we need to understand is that we cannot know the Father without knowing Jesus. So in here, we have a mixture of generations. So I spend a lot of my time studying Generation Z. Uh, Gen Z are those born between 1995 and 2010. Um, and Gen Z, they make, up the, 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 they, they make up a third of the U.S. population. Um, so they're a massive generation. And the generation after them, which might be named Generation Alpha, they don't have a name yet, they will not be as large as Generation Z because millennials aren't having as many kids as Gen X. Um, so they're not gonna be as large. And so Gen Z is going to become not just a culture, not just a group that will influence our culture, they're going to define 
our culture. And some of you here are a part of Generation Z. And one characteristic of Gen Z, unlike any other generation in our nation's history, is this is the first generation that is post-Christian. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. They're not anti-religion and they're not anti-spiritual. They're just not Christian. That for those of you in here who would not be classified in a Generation Z, you grew up in a generation where most likely your parents went to church, where you at least heard about Jesus. Generation Z is not that way. Where 50% of Gen Z, their parents did not go to church, therefore they never went to church. That for those of us in here who are old enough, and I know I'm young, and I know we're in Oklahoma, so most of us relate to this, but almost everyone here probably at some point, if you grew up in Oklahoma or even North Texas, you probably went to False Creek, right? Like it's a part of who we are. When David Payne mentions False Creek, we know what that means. At some point, people aren't going to know what False Creek is simply because their parents never went and they never went whenever they were a kid. It's different, but they're still after the spiritual. And so what we have to understand what Jesus is saying is that, look, you can't find the spiritual. You can't find the father. You can't find purpose. You can't find meaning unless you come through Jesus. And John 14, six, Jesus tells us that, that he, that I, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, through Jesus. That if we want life, if we want hope, we have to come through Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've come through Jesus, and you've met the Father. An application for you is how can I invest then in the next generation? If the younger generation is going to define what American culture is, how can I invest into them and disciple them and lead them to love Jesus better? And so Jesus, he and the Father are one. We see it in his essence. The problem is, church, sometimes we have foolish faith. Sometimes we don't believe that because our faith is maybe in our own works, or our own words. So the second truth that we see this morning is that Jesus' works reveal his essence. Jesus' works reveal his essence. So, so look back at verse 31. So Jesus has now made his statement. And Jesus says in verse, verse 31, or that John writes, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that, you are, that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And then ju jump to verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So in, in the Old Testament, the, the Jews had the right to stone people because of certain sins. And the reason they would stone them is because of the severity of their sin. So these sins include blasphemy, um, it's dishonoring your parents, it is murder, um, and then breaking the, the Sabbath. If you broke one of these laws, then your punishment was, was death. But the way it worked was not if you broke a law, then we pick up stones in that moment and we kill you. 
but we would arrest you, we would put you on trial, and then if we found that you were guilty and the witnesses said that you were guilty, then you would be stoned. The problem and the issue for the Jews is that they no longer live in a theocracy, but they now live under the authority of Rome. And they do not have the right to perform capital punishment. They don't, uh, they're able to do that. And so what they do instead is either they would hand them over to the Roman government and the Roman government would crucify them or kill them. Or in this instance, they would have a lynch mob mentality that rather than putting this person on trial, they would just pick up the stones right there and they'd kill him. And that's exactly what they're trying to do in our passage, trying to take Jesus's life without putting him on trial. And the reason they do that is because they are so captivated and consumed with their own religious identity and works that they don't, don't see Jesus. They don't understand who Jesus is. And so on the screen, you see, you see this statement. The foolishness of the Jews is that they are so captivated by the work of themselves to honor the temple. They reject the work of God in the real temple, Jesus Christ. See, last week our pastor did an excellent job explaining to us the Feast of Dedication or, or Hanukkah. And he shared with us that um, there is a man named Judas Maccabeus called the Hammer. I I've, am starting a petition that we call our pastor the hammer, um, but Judas Maccabeus the hammer leads the Jews in revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes because he has desecrated the temple by leading the Jews to, uh, to sacrifice unclean, unlawful animals. And so Judas leads the Jews, they defeat Antiochus Epiphanes and that they have now consecrated and cleansed the temple. And so here they are in the midst of a celebration that the temple is now clean and in their hypocrisy because they're so consumed with their own works when they think they are cleansing the temple, they're actually, actually desecrating it because John has already told us that Jesus is the temple. Uh, John chapter one, verse 14 on the screen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What's the purpose of the temple? It's the place where God dwells. It's a place we encounter the goodness of God. It's the place we come before God, confess our sins, and give our unrighteousness to receive his righteousness in return. What has John told us? That Jesus is the temple. Uh, we learned when we did John chapter one, like five years ago or something, that the word dwelt means to tabernacle or to temple. That Jesus Christ came and he templed among us. And then John chapter two, what does Jesus say? That he's going to tear down, he's going to destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. And we know that he's talking about his own body, saying he is the place where God dwells. But the Jews don't notice it because they're so, so captivated by their own religious activity and church. We do the same thing, right? So captivated in our works and what we do and the way we do church. As a kid, I loved to do the most, the worst thing that you could do in a church and it was run. I loved running in the church. I loved being a kid that, that just 
in a sense, caused problems. I was everywhere, um, on the walls, on the ceiling. I mean, I loved hanging out and playing in the church. And I was told all the time, hey, hey, don't, don't run in the church. And I understood what they were saying. You know, treat it with respect. We don't want you to run into something. We don't want you to break something. Like I understood all of that. But I think sometimes what we do is we get so caught up in our religious activity and what we love about church that we miss Jesus. That we love our schedule of coming on Sunday mornings and being here for an hour to two hours, serving in one other way. And we kind of check it off a list and we just say, we've, we've done our duty, we've done our job and that's about it. And we can come here and not really encounter the Lord because we like what we have put on. We even come to church and what we hope is that the pastor, the preacher, shares something that we can what? Go out into our lives and apply. Because what we want is this works-based faith. Tell me what to do and let me go and do it. And that's what the Pharisees want when Jesus is saying, look, it's about my work and my works reveal that I am God and that you can't earn your salvation. Another reason we like to depend on our works is because we think we're in control. We like to be in control, right? I do. I like to be in charge. I like to be able to say what's going to happen. And Jesus says, look, you're not in control. See, when, Jesus, when, when, when God's presence is in a temple, it's almost like he's controlled. He's confined to a place. So when I come here to the temple, I've got to put my, 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 my happy face on, my, my moral activity needs to be on display, all the good works that I do. But when I leave the temple, it's not a big deal because God's over there and I'm over here. But what we've seen is Jesus has now broken free and God's presence is now in the midst of all of us. In fact, we see in John 3 that the Holy Spirit goes wherever he wants and we are no longer in control. That whatever works that you think earn your salvation and lead you to God, Jesus is showing that they're not good enough. But it's his work because his work reveals his character and your work reveals your character broken, unrighteous, unclean, in need of someone to save you. But the reason we depend on our works is because we trust our word. The reason we reject Jesus's work is because we really don't believe his word. So the third truth that we see this morning is that Jesus's words reveal his essence. Jesus's word reveals his essence. And so in verse, verse 33, John writes, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So the Jews they, they had a verse that laid the foundation for why they got angry with Jesus. It's Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. I think it's on here. There we go. And Moses writes, the Lord says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy six, chapter four was John 3, 16 for the Jews. Everyone knew this verse. 
And they understood what this verse meant. And in fact, we, we need to give the Pharisees just a little bit of a break because they, they have a hard time, just like me and you, understanding how this one God can exist in many persons. And so they're wrestling with it and they're struggling with it. But the problem is they trust their own interpretation of the word of God and not God's interpretation of the word of God. They depend upon their, themselves. And so what, what God does, what Jesus does, is he points them to another passage in Psalm 82. And Psalm 82 seems obscure. It's like most of us in here probably know John 3.16, but if I ask you to tell me what 2 Peter 3.11 says, I don't know what it says. I don't know if there is a 3.11. I think there is. Um, but 2 Peter 3.11, like most of you are going to be able to tell me John 3.16, right? So while the Pharisees know God's word better than probably we know God's word, they don't fully understand all of it, but they have their own interpretation. So in Psalm 82, what God does is he calls people gods in both chapter 82, verse one and verse six. And it's not that we are divine or we have some sort of deity, we have the same essence, but it's a word used for representation that the people of Israel, the judges in Israel, they act as these gods who govern and care for and represent the one God in behalf of the people and on behalf of the world. But the point Jesus is trying to make is, look, if you who are sinful and broken, if the Bible can call you gods and the Bible can't be broken, then me who is perfect and blameless and righteous, why can I not be the son of God? And so you in rejecting me being the son of God, you're rejecting God's word. And what Jesus says in this passage, he says your law, because Jesus is showing them that you have misunderstood the Bible. See, we all bring our own ideas and presuppositions of scripture, right? Like none of us, if we're honest, read scripture objectively from God's point of view. We bring our situations, we bring our circumstances, we bring what we've already been taught, what we already believe to be true whenever we read God's word. And whenever we read something that attacks our own ideas and our own way of life, we just kind of push it off and think it's wrong. Because no one in here would say, you know what, I love when people say that I'm wrong, right? Like we love to be right. The other day on Thursday, I was defending my, my project and I'll just be honest, I was as stressed and anxious as I could have been. Um, while I was confident in what I've learned, it wasn't over until it was over until they said that, that I had passed. And so I'm in this defense for two hours of them just drilling me with questions. And there are moments where I'm like, look, I'm right. I know what I've done. But I had to come in humility and I had to trust and listen to what they had to say and really think about their critiques and their criticisms and what, what they're trying to tell me. But I'm gonna tell you the most difficult part of Thursday. It had nothing to do with whether they told me I passed or failed. It had everything to do with what was going to happen today when I showed up at church. Because every one of my small group leaders who lead in our student ministry, I told them I was taking it. I wasn't telling anyone because I was afraid. And you know what I was afraid of? Walking in to meet with them like we do every Sunday and to say, I didn't pass. 
and the humiliation that would have followed that. You know why? Because as a person, I tend to put my faith in my rightness and not in God's righteousness. On the screen, you, you see that, that too often, if I can get there, too often we place our identity in our rightness rather than in Jesus's righteousness. We've already made up our minds that we're correct. We've already made up our minds that we know what's in here. And then when someone attacks us, tells us we may not have all the facts, tells us we may be wrong, we push back because we don't wanna be humiliated. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is showing them that they're wrong. And so what do we do? We don't respond with foolish faith depending on ourselves, but we come with confident humility. I, I love this quote on the screen by John, John Piper. Listen to what he says. My, my feelings are not God, God is God. My feelings do not define truth, God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives and sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. Whatever we say about ourselves, it's only true if it agrees with God's word. Whatever your view of reality is, it's only true if it agrees with God's word. And so we have to be people who come to God's word with confident humility, confident that I know what God has taught me and I'm gonna stand on that truth. I'm not telling you every time we come to God's word, we question it as if we cannot know truth. We can know the truth because we have known Jesus. That the sheep listen to his voice. So I am confident in the fact that Jesus Christ is God. I am confident that Jesus Christ is sinless. I am confident he has died for my sins and I am confident that he is raised from the dead and that when I pass from this life, I will see him face to face and I will know him. I am confident in that truth, but I am humble enough to know that maybe I'm wrong about something else Something that I haven't really studied. Because listen, while the sheep know the shepherd's voice, the goats think they do too. And we have to be humble enough to say, God, maybe I'm wrong about something. And I'm gonna listen to you and I'll allow you to teach me and allow you to tell me. So how do we know that we're a, a, a part of the sheep and not a goat? It's when everything that we read in scripture leads us to love and follow Jesus because Jesus Christ is a hero of God's word. It's all about him, not about you, not about what you can do, but about him and his work and what he's done on behalf for us. And so the final truth that we see is that our response reveals our belief in his essence. Our response reveals our belief in his essence. And so we come to the end of this passage and the Jews are angry. They, they aren't willing to turn from their works and turn from their words. They trust in themselves. So they pick up stones to throw at Jesus. And we can respond in one of two ways. We can first respond like the Pharisees and pick up stones. Now listen, I'm going to assume that you're not gonna go home today and grab a stone because you're angry at what you've heard and hold that stone in your hand all day. But what we might do is because we don't like what we hear is we decide to quit coming to church. 
We don't like what we read, so we quit reading the Bible. We don't feel like God's answering our prayers in the way we want him to answer, so we say, what's the point? We may get on Facebook and put that post out there about how, why, why we are right and God's word is wrong. We might tell someone off because they disagree with our point of view. We can be a Pharisee and try to justify our own actions. Or we can be like the many who came to Jesus and believed. See, what, what John's done for us is he's brought Jesus back to the beginning of John's ministry, to the same location. And what John's trying to do is he's, he's ending this section of John. It's the bookend, that it begins with John's ministry, and then it ends with the, in the same place of John's ministry. And what John is trying to tell us is that Jesus has finished his work. And the only thing left for Jesus to do is in chapter 12 through 22, where Jesus lays down his life for us. All we have left is in chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus. Besides that, the, the ministry of Jesus is over. And what Jesus is asking us, what John is asking us is, what do you believe? Do you believe the signs? Do you believe the work? Have you put your faith in Jesus or not? And so it ends, verse 40. In verse 40, it says, that, or 41, and many came to him. And 42, and many believed in him there. Two things to point out. Number one, the many. The many came to Jesus, but we don't know who they are. There's no fame, there's no popularity, there's no identity, they're just the many. And in coming to Jesus, it doesn't mean that everything about your life becomes perfect right away. It doesn't mean that you get all the happiness you want. It doesn't mean you have popularity or, or, or fame or anything like that. What it means is that you have Jesus. And while we don't know who the many are, Jesus does. But notice where they do it. There. See, they don't leave where John was ministering and go back to their homes to think about it. They don't talk about it over lunch. They don't do some more research. They believe in him there. And for some of us this morning, that there needs to be here. That for some of us this morning, we've heard the message, we've seen the works, we know the word, all that's left is for us to believe. We need to let go of the stones and place our faith in Jesus. See, this, this work that you're trying to do to make yourself right, these ideas that you have that you think are truth, man, Jesus is showing us that we can't earn our salvation. And everything about the truth always points to him, always leads us to him. And so our response to that is we come to him and we believe here. Let's pray. Father, we... We are grateful for the chance to gather before you today. God, I know that for a lot of us, we, we so often depend on ourselves. And God, it may not be to, to earn our salvation, but maybe just to please you. God, we think that you did the first part. Now we've got to finish it off. But Lord, help us see that, that God, we can't do anything to save us. We can't do anything to make us right. But God, you've done everything. Lord, help us see that 
often our understanding of the truth is wrong. And God, often we think we have the answers when really your word reveals the answers to us. And so Lord, my, my prayer for us this morning is that for those of us who depend on ourselves, who depend on our own knowledge, on our own effort, that this morning your spirit will break through and give salvation, give hope and give life. God, may we be men and women who faithfully follow you in dependence upon the work of your son. And so God, may our faith be one of complete trust in you and not be foolish faith that we trust in ourselves. And so Lord, we, 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 are, we are grateful for the hope that we have in your son. God, we love you in your name, amen.